Last week we began dealing with the focus of the Overcoming Church is the series title. And we started looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we realized that every one of these churches that is here, each of them depicts a specific um, attribute or something that the churches that churches experience from the beginning. There are certain things that we see here that are going to be consistent that we're going to see in the churches um, throughout history from the time that the church began. And so here, as we continue to look at these churches, it is important that we glean or learn from them what God expects of us as well as what we can expect. And more importantly, that we don't lose sight of what we have already received by grace. That when we look at all of these things, that we realize that Jesus already overcame every plan, every work of the enemy, and that our lives are bound up in him. That is an awesome thing. Amen? He has us in his hands. And the second church here that Jesus begins to speak to is a church by the name of Smyrna. When you look at its name, it is the second church address, and the name means myrrh. And it is, it is, and what myrrh is, it is a bitter gum or a costly perfume which exudes from a certain tree or shrub in Arabia or Ethiopia. It either exudes from the tree or it is obtained by incisions made in the bark, and it is an antiseptic that was used for embalming. Why is this important? Well, because this is the church, and I've called this church, and I'm going to let you know the title of the message in the beginning here. I told you all at the end last week. But the title of this message is The Persecuted, Poor, and Perfect Church. The Persecuted, Poor, and Perfect Church. Now, when I say perfect, I know everybody, you know, you're, you, just, you just, you know, something bounced up inside, and you're like, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Well, I want to let you know something here. Jesus doesn't give this church any critique Jesus tells this church, continue doing what you're doing. So he is perfecting this church. Has this church arrived? No, it will arrive if it continues on doing what it's doing. But when you look at the name of this church, this is a church that is persecuted, a church that is being pressed. And so its name symbolizes what they really are and what this myrrh really is. They use this for embalming and antiseptic. And so when I was thinking about this, I said, how, do, how does this apply to us as Christians? And I realized this, antiseptic used for embalming. Well, embalming, we know, is for dead people. Say dead people. Right. And so it's to you know, antiseptic to hinder decay and all that stuff. Right. Well, the Bible teaches us that we are supposed to die daily. Does it not? Therefore, we need the myrrh of heaven. Therefore, we need the antiseptic. So as we die, we don't decay. I hope you got that. We need, we, need, we need something to keep us from becoming contaminated as we go through daily life and we are dying to ourselves. How many of y'all know dying is painful? It's painful. It hurts. When we, when we are confronted with our sin, when we are dealing with ourselves, when we are dealing with the grace of God and what God has done and then looking in the mirror of his word and seeing how much more he has to do, it's a painful reality. Hello. And yet we find that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we are experiencing, that God is there offering us this antiseptic and saying, listen, as you go through this process, and what do you mean that he's offering this to us? Well, he put an anointing in us. Amen. And as we are squeezed, what comes out? It should be that anointing, glory to God. It should be the presence of God. When we're going through whatever we're going through, when we're facing whatever we're facing, the antiseptic should be exuding us. And so it is either flowing from us, right, the tree, it exudes from the tree, or, or you make these incisions, or we're being cut, experiencing some pain. But guess what happens when you get cut? The anointing flows. 
in a greater way. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't flow until you're cut. Hallelujah. That's how we really know what's really inside when you get cut. I know some of y'all be like, I cut you, glory to God. Uh -huh. Hear me. You know, I, I, love, I love the example that my father would give. My father, would, he said to me, he said, you know what? Christians are like sponges, right? How do you know what's inside of a sponge? You got to squeeze it. You got to squeeze it. And this is what happens to every church member on the planet. Some of us are squeezed in different ways, different times, but we all get the same admonition. And we get the same comfort because we know that God is our antiseptic. He is that anointing that dwells in us. This city of Smyrna, it was called the crown of Asia. It is the modern. Today, it is Izmir, Turkey. And it was thought to be the most beautiful in Asia Minor. It was a center of science and medicine. This is important for us to understand some of these facts about this place. This is a beautiful place. As a matter of fact, because this church is the way that it is, and I actually looked this up online. You remember in the, in, in the, 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 the first church we talked about, the church of Ephesus, remember, talked about removing their lampstand? And one of the things that's amazing is that Ephesus no longer exists. It's not there anymore, right? No church there. But when you look at this, you look at Turkey today, they actually call these people because the, 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 the religion, the national religion is Muslim. I went online, looked it up, 99.9% or 99% Muslim, right? And then 1% other, that other consists of Christian and Muslims. And you know what they call Christians? The infidel Smyrna. That's amazing. I, I, I don't know if you get that, but that is, that, 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 that is some deep roots of Christianity that because of this church's fidelity and because of what this church did, because of this church, this church made a mark in that land. And even though the original city was destroyed, there's still a church there today. Hallelujah. There's still a church there today. Guarantee you they're being persecuted. They're going through all kinds of stuff because they're living where they are the real minority. In this place, this place was known for, 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 for um, science and medicine. And Smyrna at this time was also known for its loyalty to Rome, which resulted in strong and a strong emperor worship cult. And so what happened was one of the main religions in that land was the emperor worship. Caesar is Lord. That's what, they, that's what the pagans and heathens, that's how they, they, they worship. There was that emperor worship. So they were looking for God. Everybody's looking for a God at this time. And so you have them. Those are the people that are there that are heathens. Then you have the ones or the, those are the ones that don't know God and you know that they're just totally in false worship and then you have the other group of people that are spoken about here and those are the Jewish people those are the ones who are Jewish those are the ones who, who, who have the Old Testament those are the ones who know religious truth and stuff like that they are the ones who, who, who through whom it comes where does salvation come through the Jew amen glory to God and we realize that these people are in the midst of this these Christians are in there 50 years after John dies after John the Apostle dies and it's believed that when he wrote this book he actually wrote it to this pastor or the first bishop of this church and his, na his name was Polycarp and this dude was 86 years old, and he was burned. He was burned because he would not worship Caesar. 
This is the history of this place. So it's believed that when they were writing this letter to this church, that, they, that it was written to this pastor, that when he's saying to the angel or it was written to this bishop, to this overseer, when he was writing to them, he's saying, listen, there's some persecution that's going to come. There's some things that are going to happen, and this guy loses his life. And for the glory and honor of God, today there is still Christian population that is there. God has been merciful. This church received no rebuke from the Lord. That's the reason why I call it perfect. doesn't mean that there weren't issues. Any church is going to have issues, but God doesn't rebuke it, doesn't tell it to change course, doesn't tell it to alter anything. And while they were greatly disliked and persecuted in the city, they were truly praised by God. And let me say this to you. Above all praise, now look, we all look for praise, and if you say that you don't, you're lying, okay? Everybody in here looks for some kind of somebody to just say, hey, man, you did a good job. And no matter what, even though we say, I don't need that, listen, we all like it. I'm going to be the first one that tells you, I don't need to hear that stuff, but I'll tell you this much, when I hear it, it makes me feel good. I'm just, I'm just being real about it, so you know I hope you can be honest about it. But the fact is, we all look, we, we all want to hear some kind of praise. We all want to hear about the good job we did as we're growing up. You know, we talk about children all the time. I talk about my daughter. My daughter does something. She does what? She wants to come and show us what she did so we can what? So we can praise her. We teach our children to have pride in their work and the things that they do. Remember when I was a kid, you know, one of the biggest things that I was, that, that I was taught is, listen, when you write your name, you need to have pride in the way you write your name. Write that name. Make sure it's legible. And then as you grow up, you realize you need to make sure your signature is as legible as possible so no one can forge it. Glory to God. So all throughout school, you're learning, make sure you can see everything, writing in cursive, perfect. And then you get older, you're like, hold up, man, that's going to be too easy for someone to, 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 to forge that there, right? Okay. So the fact of the matter is, we all want that. But here's the reality, that all above all praise, it should be our highest aim. Our highest aim and our highest goal is to not receive praise of men, but to receive praise from God to receive praise from the king, that he has acknowledged us and he has seen what we're going through. When we read these scriptures here, we find this. We find in, in, in verse 8 and 9 here, look what he says. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The first thing, please repeat this after me, Jesus not only identifies with us conceptually, but experientially. Jesus doesn't just identify with us conceptually. There are some things that I will never go through. There are some things I will never experience, and I will only be able to relate with people based on a concept, conceptually, based on a book that I read, based on a testimony that I heard, based on a conversation that I had, but I will never experience those things. Jesus is not like that. The first thing he does, and you'll notice in all, of these, in, in all of these introductions, when he introduces himself, what he does is he communicates something that he already revealed in chapter 1. And he says to them, this, these things says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. And so what Jesus is saying clearly is he is communicating first and foremost. He's saying, listen, I want you to know I am the first, I am the last. I'm the one who has been there and done that. Amen, somebody. He introduced himself as the one who was dead and came to life. He's saying the persecution, the hardship, the difficulty, the betrayal, everything that you're facing, I've already been there. I've already experienced that. I was crucified for it, and I came to life. Be encouraged. I'm with you. Hallelujah. I've already been through all of that. 
Every tear that you're crying, I've cried. Every situation you've experienced, I've experienced. And so I want you to know I'm with you. He wants to encourage this church because this church is walking in the way that it's supposed to. Notice, Jesus says to them, he knows their tribulation. You look up the word tribulation, it is the word lispis. And what it means is it means a pressing, pressing together, or pressure. It means oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, straits. And so Jesus is saying, I know the pressure you're facing. I know what is squeezing you right now. I know what is hint, what, 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 what has got a grip on you. I know what you're going through. I see it. I'm there. I, I'm seeing what's going on. Remember the first church? He says he's the one who holds the stars in his hands, and he's the one who walks among the lamps. He's, he's walking. He sees everything that is happening. He's there among them. He's letting them know, listen, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure that you're facing. What pressure were they facing? Continue reading on with me here in verse, in, I'm sorry, in verse 9, or in verse 9 toward the latter part. It says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so notice he's saying, you guys are having pressure. What kind of pressure were they having? They were having some serious pressure from two areas. The first area was the area of those pagans who loved to worship Caesar because they didn't want anyone to come up in there and talk about, no, he's a false god, we need to worship Jesus. So they were definitely receiving pressure from that side. But the other side of the pressure was another pressure that, 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 that was just as intense, if not more, because when Polycarp, this pastor, was crucified, the Jewish people of that city were actually out there wanting him. Listen to this now. They were wanting him to be thrown to the lions because he would not worship Caesar. This is the Jewish people of that day. There was some kind of hindrance. They couldn't burn him on, they, they couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't um, do that. They couldn't throw him to the lions for whatever the reason was. And it is said in, his, historically that the people who were bringing the logs to keep the fire burning were the Jewish people. You know why they did that? They want to make an example of him and say, listen, man, don't be coming up in here talking about Jesus. Hopefully all of your followers will fall away once we burn you like this. They were receiving some intense persecution, some intense tribulation that was going on, something that we don't know anything about. Brother Lewis, he sent, he sent an email out to some of, some, some of the men, I think, and I'm not sure who else was on that email, but he sent it out, and he was talking about the, you know, the, 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 the persecution of the Egyptian Christians and, 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 this, and these things that are going on. He was talking about that, and he's like, man, you know, we're complaining because we're tired, and, you know, and, and, and we just can't make it to church because of whatever. These people are over here. They can't pray because people are trying to kill them trying to hinder them from praying. That's, that, 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 this, is, this is the difference. Hallelujah, glory to God. I know we don't want to hear that, praise the Lord. But it's the truth, right? These people, are, these people wish, listen, they wish they could come to church like we do. They wish they could worship freely like we do. But they can't. Folks, I, 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 re, re, reading a book, more than just numbers, um, Dr. Dr. Young Cho in Seoul, Korea, the largest church in the world is probably like, at that time when I read this book, it was probably over eight years ago, at that time the guy had like 750,000 members. That's a pretty big church, don't you think? As 750,000 members is a lot of folks. And these, and, and these folks, understand this, they work on Saturdays. Not like us, that, you know, a lot, a lot of us, you know, normal job schedule Monday through Friday. Saturday, Sunday off. I'm saying normal. You know, some of us got crazy schedules and stuff like that. Normal schedules, right? Monday through Friday, off on Saturday, good to go. Dr. Youngie Cho, he says this in his book. He says, Friday night is the only night that I really get to preach and teach. 
Because during the week, obviously, you got to think about this. If they have 750,000 members, you can imagine how many services they have on a Sunday in order to get those people in and out of this building, right? So what that means is he can't just preach for an hour and a half every service. So he says on Friday night is when they have their prayer service, right? They have their, that's when they have their lock-in every Friday. This is every Friday night they have this lock-in. Folks are walking to church on Friday night, staying in church all night long to then walk to work on Saturday. Did you hear what I just said? Listen to me now. We're talking about, you know, devotion and all that stuff and difficulty, okay? These folks come to church, stay in church all night Friday, worshiping, praying, hearing the word. Some of us can't be in church for more than an hour and a half. We start looking at our watch. When is Bishop going to stop? Some of us sit down there. We're in the middle of worship and praise. Okay, you know, when is this going to be over? These people walk to church, stay in church all night long, and that way they can hear the word of God, worship God, glorify him, and then they go to church on Saturday, happy, glorifying the Lord. Amen. He says to them, I know your tribulation. Second thing he says, he says, I know your poverty. The word poverty is the word tokeo in the Greek, and it means beggar, beggary. In the New Testament, it means poverty. It means the condition of one who is destitute of riches and abundance, having a state or, or, or a state of having insufficient possessions. You got to remember, these people surrounded by idolatry on one side, surrounded by false religion on the other side, right? Because why does, why does God, now I want you to notice this. This is Jesus talking here. Amen. Everybody realizes that. This is, Je- this is not an apostle. Even if it was an apostle, it would be fine. But I want you to understand this. This is Jesus speaking, and he says that these people who call themselves Jews are a synagogue of Satan. And that's crazy. When you think about that, these are people that are assured in their minds. They are 100% sure that they are God's chosen people. They are good to go. They do not need anything. The Messiah didn't come. I mean, they are convinced. That's That's their mindset. And Jesus says they're a synagogue of Satan. And why is that? Well, if you turn in your Bible, you don't have to do that right now, but 1 John chapter 4, it talks about this anointing. It talks about us. I mean, it speaks to us about not accepting every spirit but testing every spirit. And it says that if there is someone who denies Jesus, right, what does it say? It's Antichrist. They are, this is the spirit of Antichrist. That's what he's communicating. And so what Jesus is saying, he's simply confirming what John communicated in his first epistle. He's saying, look. These people, are, they're operating in an antichrist spirit. They are against Jesus. They're against me, making them my enemies. That's what he is saying. That's not what I'm saying. This is what Jesus is saying. So these people, on one side, they have the synagogue of Satan, these religious people who know all the rules, and yet they don't love Jesus, dishonor him. And then they have this other group of people that are over here. These are people that are heathen. They, look, they, they worship Caesar. They worship idols. They do their own thing, and they, don't want, and they don't want this church to prosper. They want them to leave. So this church is one that is poverty-stricken, a church that doesn't have a whole bunch of money. This church is not overflowing. This church is definitely not building anything. This church is struggling. They're saying they're poor. What does Jesus say? But you're rich. See, it's a, it's a real contrast because when you think about it, remember the first church, Ephesus, remember what we talked about last week? That first church, man, that was a church to look at, wasn't it? That was a church. They knew all the doctrine. They, were, they weren't having all kind of heavy persecution that was, you know, going on so much around them like this one is described to have. They were the church you wanted to be like. Everybody, like, man, that church is blessed. And God says, hold on a second, y'all better repent before I move that candle out. I move that light out the way. He tells them to repent. 
But this church, Smyrna, everybody's looking at this church saying, man, what's wrong with that pastor? What's wrong with those leaders? They, 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 they shouldn't be a church, man. They broke. They messed up. They can't, they, they, they can't accomplish anything. It's important for us to realize something. It is not always as it seems. We'll look forward in a couple of weeks, and we'll see here when we look at this other church. This other church, Laodicea, is going to say, they're going to say, man, you're rich. You think you have this, you have that, you have the next thing, but you're poor, you're wretched, naked, blind. It goes into all of that. And this is what I want you to realize. It is not until you and I recognize our own poverty that we can fully experience the true riches of grace. It is not until you and I understand our own poverty that we can truly experience the true riches, the full riches of grace. When we understand our poverty, that's the reason why. Remember, we talked about this a couple, week, a couple of weeks ago. That's why the apostle Paul said, I want to preach Christ and him crucified. Because every time you look at the cross, you and I understand, no matter how good I am, I'm not good enough. Every time I look at the cross and every time that we look, every time that we look at the cross, we realize we are not all that. Because as good as you are, guess what? He died for you. You heard that? As good as you are, he died for you. As righteous as you think you are, he died for you. These people, different mindset. We're poor, man. We don't have anything. Jesus is encouraging them. You're rich. You have something. Second thing, say this with me. Jesus sees where we are headed and what is coming against us. Look at verse 10. Jesus tells them. Now he goes and he tells them, I know everything is going on around you. And then he tells them, do not fear any of those things you are about to suffer. Now, let's pause for a moment. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He didn't say, I'm going to deliver you from suffering. That isn't what he said, is it? Unless you have a different translation. And if yours said he's going to deliver you from suffering, I advise you to get a new Bible. He says to them, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. He goes on to say, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Look, he broke it down for them. He's telling them, the devil will throw you in prison. That's an exciting prophecy, isn't it? How would you like that? I told you, listen, church, we're all about to go to prison for loving Jesus. It'd be encouraging, right? See how quiet it is right now? Y'all like, I just felt like depression enter the room, right? Right at that moment, it's like, oh, my goodness, we're going to jail for loving Jesus. <laughs> he tells them, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus sees where we're headed and what is coming. Suffering, listen to this, church. Suffering is not always a sign of disobedience and rebellion. Sometimes it is the only sign that we are walking in the right direction. We always think, I mean, just be real. I mean, just be really honest with yourself. Now, I know, I, and, and I, I can talk for me. I can't talk for you. I can talk for myself. And this, this is what I know for sure. What I know for sure is this, is that, the first thing that comes to my head when someone goes through something wrong, immediately, the first thing is, and what are they doing wrong? Right? What are they doing wrong? And if I know what they're doing, I'll be like, oh, that's why, see? That, keep, on, keep on disobeying God, right? The first thing, 
Now, later on, you know, sometimes it's a week later, sometimes it's minutes later. It just depends on the situation. I realize, man, it's not always about somebody did something wrong. Sometimes folks just go through stuff because they're going through stuff. Sometimes you're going in the right direction, and you're going to go through some suffering. You're going to go through some heartache. You're going to go through some difficulty. That's the bottom line. And so you need to be able to read the signs correctly. You know, you look, you know, when you, when you drive on certain roads, you know, it's not, it's not like that, you know, in a whole bunch of places in Florida. But there are some real dangerous roads. And when you get up, you know, you get up on these roads as, as you're driving, you know, they have like this big S turn in it, right? And they'll tell you, you know, the speed limit is way low. You need to drive slow. You could die, stuff like that. That doesn't mean turn around. That means drive with caution. Right? I mean, realistically, my great-grandmother, she, you know, she, obviously she can't drive right now. But she used to drive. And I don't even think this woman would drive over bridges. She was just, like, scared like that. I don't know how she got to places. <laughs> but she was so afraid of heights, she wouldn't drive over bridges. That was just, it, it, it was like, that was a sign for her. Turn around, you can't go that way. No, wait a second. Sometimes that's the way you got to go, amen? Sometimes that's the path you have to take. Sometimes that's the way that we know, okay, you know what, I'm going in the right direction. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's simply coming to them to encourage them and say, listen, you're going to go through some tribulation. You're going to go through some hardship. Don't fear those things. Don't be afraid of what's happening. One of the greatest testaments to our faith, remember I talked about in the beginning, what happens to us when we're going through situations and circumstances, and as we're being pressed, there's something that should flow out of us. Well, one of the greatest testaments to our faith is how we endure testing and temptations of the enemy. This is what you and I have to realize. The enemy desires to destroy us while we are suffering. The enemy desires to destroy us. He wants to prove that you don't love Jesus. He wants to prove that you really don't serve God. He wants to prove that you do not want him to be the leader of your life. He wants to destroy you in any way that he can. That's what he wants to do. you got to realize that. But here's the other thing that you have to realize is that while the enemy wants to destroy you, God wants to refine you through suffering. The enemy wants to totally annihilate you. But your heavenly father, as you're going through suffering, he wants to use those things in order to make you the man of God or the woman of God. He created you to be something greater than what you are. And that is the image and reflection of his son. Hallelujah. The goal, the highest goal of every Christian is not to be the best this or to be the best that. It is to be the most clear representation of Jesus Christ while we walk in this earth. That is the highest goal. You have arrived at the place where you need to be when you are reflecting him in all areas of your life. That is the goal. That is the desire of our Heavenly Father. It is to refine us, to mold us, and to make us more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's his desire. The enemy wants you to turn away from him. The father wants you to run to him. We are admonished. What does he say? He says, be faithful until death. We are admonished not to allow anything to dissuade us from our devotion to Christ. Not even death. Look at that. Not even death. He's saying, listen, the first thing he says, this is what he says in the beginning of that verse there. He says, don't fear. Last thing he says, be faithful. When you fear, you won't be faithful. Did you hear me? When you fear, you will not be faithful. You won't be faithful. When you fear, when you allow fear to dominate any area of your life, you won't be faithful. You won't continue on forward. You, if, you, if you're afraid you're going to fail at something, guess what you will do? You will stop doing it. Or, 
This is the or. Or you'll do it until you fail. What do I mean by that? You're not trying. You're just going to go ahead and do it until you fail. You have no hope. You have no ambition. You're not really being faithful. You're not giving it all that you have. You're not doing it all. You're not going all out in it. You're just doing it until you fail. Well, you know what? I know I'm going to fail. They told me to do this. They asked me, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to fail, and then I'll be all right. No. That's not being faithful. So what he says is, don't be afraid. Be faithful even until death. In other words, he's saying, listen, when these things come upon you, don't quit. When these hardships come upon you, don't give up. When these situations, you're, you're, you're confronted with them, this is what's coming. I'm letting you know you're going to suffer. I'm letting you know there's going to be persecution. I'm letting you know this. So Jesus is saying, if he's saying be faithful unto death, he's saying there's a possibility that you may die. But what he is saying is be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. The third thing that Jesus points out here, Jesus promises, say this with me, Jesus promises us the reward of running the race that is set before us. The last part of the verse says, be faithful until death. And, he, and, and when you look at that word, be faithful unto death, is literally saying, continue to prove yourself faithful even until death. Continue to show that you're faithful. Continue to demonstrate your faithfulness even unto death. Verse 11 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so here's the reality. If he's telling you he who overcomes, that means that there is someone who cannot overcome. That means there is someone who will fail. There is someone who will fear enough to turn away. There is someone who will fear enough to deny the faith. There is someone who will fear enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to prison. I'm not going through all of that stuff. I'm going to, you know what, I'm, I'm just not going that route. And then when you do that and you rationalize that, then, you know, what's going to happen, man? You're just going to totally turn away from God because you don't want to look at God and say, oh, well, you know, I denied you there, but I'm cool with you. No. And that's what the enemy wants to do. Again, destroy you, get you to turn away. So he says, if you overcome, you're not going to experience a second death. He tells you, be faithful unto death. He says, I'm going to give you this reward. He talks about this crown of life. This crown of life is like the victor's crown. It's when this person is running. It's the, the example is, as, as those runners ran in those days, the person who won the race, he got this wreath that they put on his head, and he, that's how everybody knew that he was the victor. And so Christ is saying, look, you run this race, you, you walk this path that is before you, this is, your, th th this is what you get. You get this, you, you, not a literal wreath. He is saying, when you go to heaven, you're going to be crowned. You did it. You walked this out. That's what we're looking forward to. Hallelujah. We're looking forward to that day. That's what we're supposed to be looking forward to. I want this to be clear. It should be clearly understood that we can only run because of the grace of God. That is it. We don't run because we're so great. We don't run because we're so strong. We don't run because we know so much. We run because the grace of God. We run because his grace empowers us. We run because his grace enables us. We run because of what Jesus did on the cross. The Holy Spirit was sent, and now we are filled with the power and the grace of God to run and to overcome whatever obstacles we are going to face. Any strength that we have is solely the product of that grace. So here's the beauty of this, and this is just amazing to me. God is rewarding us for simply walking in his power. He's saying, look, I'm going to reward you basically because you walked in my strength, because you allowed me to empower you. So I'm going to reward you for simply surrendering to me and walking with me. Many of us, many of us that are here in this place and many of us in this nation are overly concerned about our health and living long. 
In other words, defeating death as long as possible. But at the end here, Jesus says something. He says, he who overcomes, in verse 11, shall not be hurt by the second death. Yet here's my question. As diligent as we may be about the foods we consume and about the things that we may do or not do because we want to stay healthy and we want to live as long as we can, how many of us, how many of us are concerned about overcoming the second death? Bishop, I thought we only died once. No, not according to your Bible. According to your Bible, there's two deaths. There was the first death in this physical life. And then there is a physical death, and I want you to look at what the Bible talks about because I want you to see this. Revelation, turn a couple pages over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. And you got to say Amen. And it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. Now, I want you to notice that you, you got, you know, when we read stuff like this, it's like our imagination, you know, sometimes, you know, like sci-fi movies and all this stuff have like so eaten our mind up, like we can't understand what is being said here. But I want you to realize it is saying that before his face, everything fled. So when the presence of God is manifested, everything like just disappears. <laughs> Nothing can stand in the presence of this almighty God. Nothing can stand in the presence of this king of glory. Now he's talking about this great, this is called the great white throne judgment. And so there are two groups of people sitting in this room, two groups of people walking out those, in, in those streets. There's a group of people that are going to go through this. And the people that will go through this are the ones who have not submitted their lives to Jesus, who have not repented of their sin, who have not turned themselves unto God and said, Lord, we recognize our sin. We recognize you are the only way. You are the only truth. You are the only life. And it is only in you that there is salvation. Those people who have done that. And if you are one of those people that has not submitted your heart to Jesus, if you are one of those people who has not accepted the reality that there is a second death, today's your opportunity to get it right. Look at what he's saying here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, which shows us that there's people that we don't even know, and there's going to be some people that everybody knew, that were all over the news, that everybody knew who they were, and they're going to be standing. They think they're all that today. They are going to be standing before this great white throne judgment that the Bible is depicting here, standing before God, and books were open. Now, just imagine the, 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 this. I mean, everything is fled away, and now these people are rising before this God. These books are being opened, right? So, I mean, th th this just an amazing court court appearance here that is occurring and he, and, and he, go, and, and he goes on I'm sorry I lost my place there verse 11 and he says oh, I'm sorry what, what was that verse 12 okay and, and, and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were open and another book was open now all these other books are being open and it says another book was open and this was the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and so all of these other books that are there that are opened up these are all the works that you've ever done these are all the things if you don't know Jesus now listen I said there's two groups right there's a group of people in here you submitted your life to Jesus you said Lord I need your salvation I recognize 
recognize my sin. I recognize that you are the only, that you are the only sacrifice for me, and I need you. You've acknowledged that. You're walking with him. You're, you're good to go, okay? But these other people here, they're not. The ones who have not done that. He says that he, 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 he goes on, and he says that the sea gave up the dead. Oh, I'm sorry, in, in the end of this. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. Then, the, then death in Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what happens, and listen, I'm, I'm not even going to pretend that I fully understand everything that is being communicated here, but here's what I will explain to you. When I'm looking at this, we die here in this earth, and then after we die, until this time, until this time when this judgment occurs, that the whole earth is going to be judged, and then the new heavens and the new earth are going to come, what happens is I'm in a place of death and a place of Hades and a place of suffering. After I'm in there suffering for who knows how long, whenever this time comes, I am given up before the throne of God. If I don't know Jesus and I stand there, and then I'm cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. This lake of fire is something that is, it, it, it is intense, right? It is something that is consuming. It is something that is eternal. Jesus says in chapter 2, those who overcome will not be hurt by the second death. Giving us to understand that the second death is not what some people will preach to you, that after you've been in Hades and, or, you know, and after you've been in hell for a little while, then all of a sudden you're annihilated and you just disappear. That's not the truth. The truth is you suffer for all of eternity in hell if you have not repented before you die the first time. I want to help you to understand what, what people are going to be there because the Bible gives us some examples. Look at chapter 21, the next chapter, and verse 8. And it says this, verse 7. Let's go to verse 7. Encourage you who have already overcome by the blood of the Lamb. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's the will of the Father, is that everyone would overcome, that everyone would bow their heart to Jesus. He goes on to say, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But the cowardly, cowards, those who are not willing to love Jesus unto death. That's cowardly. Those who say, you know what? I'm not, no, I'm just not going to do it. The unbelieving. See, there's the ones that are, that, that, that are cowards, right? They make a confession one time, and then they cower in the face of tribulation, in the face of trial, whatever it may be. I'm not going to walk with Jesus. You have your part in the lake of fire. Then they're the ones that are unbelieving. Let me tell you who the unbelieving ones. The unbelieving one is the one that is sitting here today that hears what I'm saying and says, ah, I don't know about that. Ah, you know, I've been enlightened. That's unbelieving. 
And you're going to truly be enlightened the day that you stand before this great white throne and you're going to remember this message. Listen, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to scare anybody in, in the wrong way. I'm trying to help you to understand something. You will remember this message and any message that you hear like this when that great white throne and you stand before it and you see heavens passing. I mean, everything is just moving and you're like, wait a second, I remember hearing about that. I'm believing. I don't know if that's true. Is that really for me? Yeah. says abominable people who just live in their sin people who just live in whatever sin that they i mean they, they just continue living they, they just love that that is an abomination before god almighty he says murderers when you think about murders you think those people that are you know on death row those people who are killing people doesn't jesus say that if you hate someone hold on a second now because I, I i know you thought you were off the hook because i'm like well i'm not a murderer Really? Do you have hatred in your heart for someone? This is, this, this is your Bible. God doesn't want us to spend eternity in hell, in the lake of fire, experiencing the second death. The sexually immoral, we know what sexual immorality is, right? Sexual immorality is any type of sex that is not ordained by God. That's sexual immorality. So that means sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, so sex before you get married, sex while you're not married, adultery would be sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, we've talked about those before, right? Any of those sexual activities, he's saying, you die today, this is your destiny. Sorcerers, you know, we think of sorcerers and we think of movies, right? The Sorcerer's Apprentice and stuff like that. It's cute Disney stuff, right? But those who really practice this stuff, right, those people, their names are not written in the, in, in the Lamb's Book of Life. No matter how good they are, idolaters. Listen, I want to let you know something right now. I, will, I, I, would, I, I would guarantee you that every one of us, we may not be idolaters, but we all struggle with idolatry. I'm not going to go as far as to call you an idolater because I don't want to offend you like that because then, you know, you'll forget about everything else I'm going to say. But because um, you'll be stuck on that. I'm not an idolater. Okay. All right. But everybody in this place struggles with idolatry, worshiping other things. It can be a person. It can be a job. It can be money. Listen, some of us idolize our problems. <laughs> Glory to God. I don't even understand that, but some of us do. Some of us think about our problems when we think about Jesus. Some of us talk about our problems more than we talk about Jesus. Sounds like an idol to me. I'm infatuated with this problem, overwhelmed by that. And I'm not just talking about, because I know, I, I can already hear the justification in your head. What are you talking about, Bishop? You know, I'm going through a problem. I'm not talking about the moment you go through it. I'm talking about five years later, you're still talking about it. Five months later, you're still talking about it. Listen, we all struggle with it. Repentance. And I love this one. And all liars. Let me explain it like this. All, the, all you little white liars, that includes you. I'm not talking about Caucasian liars, okay? I'm talking about all y'all folk that think, I'm just telling little white lies. I don't want to hurt nobody. You're a liar. You're a liar in the sight of God. And he says, you will spend 
eternity in this second death. That's not his will for your life. The Bible says he wills that all men would be saved, that none would perish. In closing, there's two things that I see here very clearly when we look at this church. First thing is this, is that God relates to, he is aware of, and he is concerned about where we are and where we're going. He introduced himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead and the one who, who, who became alive. And he is letting us know that. And the second thing, which is very important, hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. And he's telling the church, he's telling everybody sitting in here today, if you overcome, you walk with me, you're good to go. You're not going to experience a second death. But if you don't, there's a different destination. So I'll stand to our feet, please. Bow your heads right where you're at.